Welcome to Aperture. We're in conversation with the people thinking and doing things differently. If you like the podcast, please check out our other content on aperturehub.co. Welcome to the Aperture Podcast. For this episode, we're at Fongit and we're with Andy Yen, founder and CEO of Proton Mail. Andy, welcome to the podcast. Yes, thank you. Thanks for having me. Andy, I want to start with the idea of trade-offs, which is sort of inherent to the internet, because, I mean, it's become such a sort of integral part of our lives, right? I mean, it's completely embedded in our lives. You know, nobody could imagine living today without the internet. But the internet was kind of started on the model of everything being free. And that's come with all sorts of negative externalities. So start by asking, you know, have we paid too big a price for the internet? Well, I think it's the opposite, right? We haven't paid a high enough price for the internet. Uh, you know, we live in the world where we're used to getting things for free. Uh, but as any economics can tell you, you know, there's no such thing as a free lunch, right? Yep. Uh, you know, nothing is free. Everything has a cost. Um, and in fact, if you look at the internet today, uh, if you use it for free, if something is free, uh, then you know you're actually the product, right? That is being sold and repackaged, uh, and uh, actually you know bid it out to the highest bidder. Uh, so because of that, uh, I think uh, we're not paying enough for the internet, and we're paying in ways that we probably don't understand, and we probably shouldn't be paying. Uh, you know, namely today we mostly pay for our internet services with our privacy and our personal data. Yeah, uh, and that's a price that I think most people don't realize and understand. No, I think you're right. I think most people just think these services are free, full stop, right? And you know, and I think also that with this idea of sort of surveillance capitalism and su- the surveillance state and so on, you know, what's so bizarre, if you like, about this state of affairs is that whenever people thought in the past, you know, 1984 and so on about dystopias, they thought that it would be really intrusive, right? So the state would be monitoring you in a really active way and but actually what we're doing is we're surrendering our own privacy, right? It's like, it's whether it's a conscious choice or an unconscious choice, it's a, it's a choice that we've made, right? So do you think we can ever turn back the clock on that? Mm. Well, I would not, I would argue that people haven't actually made a conscious choice. Yeah. Um, because let's take a, the Irish person, right? When you agree to a terms and conditions, um, you don't actually read it. No. You don't know what you're consenting to. Um, in fact, you have no idea. And if you if you imagine like you know a 13 year old uh, child on social media, because that's the age in which you're allowed to go on social media now, you know, without parental consent, right? So there is actually now some notion uh, of parental. Well, there's always been a notion of you know certain minimum age. It's not really adhered to, or respected. It's not really verified. Of I course. didn't even know that was the case. Yes, but yeah, by law, it's supposed to be 13 in okay. most countries. Uh, you know, if you take a take like you know a teenager um, going on the when on Facebook or social media for the first time, uh, I would actually say, you know, they don't really understand what it is they've consented to, right? They don't realize the implications of giving out their data forever. Um, they don't realize that, you know, at the time that they're posting a photo on Snapchat or on Instagram, that this data could come back and haunt them, you know, four decades yeah, later. Yeah. This is not what you think about in your first social media experience.
experience. So we haven't really surrendered. We haven't really consented. Uh, in some ways, we've been sort of tricked into doing this. Uh, and uh, that's a, I think that's an important distinction, right? Because you know, consent must be informed. And without you know, um, information, you cannot willfully consent to something. And what, what role should the government play here? Because you talked, I didn't even realize there's a minimum age, right? But clearly somebody somewhere has set a minimum age because they understand that anything like, you know, drinking or having a gun or whatever, like there's, there are some, you know, you, you, you want a person to have a certain level of education or to understand the implications of what they're doing. So there have clearly been some small efforts here to try to safeguard the consumer or the individual. And we've seen Europe issue GDPR, right, again, and, and um, a sort of top-down piece of legislation to try to safeguard the individual. We have these cookies laws and things. Like, is it possible? In the same way as, you know, I, I asked you if we could turn back the clock and change customer behavior. I don't think we can. But can we protect customer behavior through legislation? Uh, well, you know, the customer behavior point we can revisit later because I'm yes. not sure I entirely agree that we cannot change customer behavior. Um, Good. But, okay. you know, let's talk about a little bit you know, government regulation, right? Um, to understand regulation, really we should look at history and kind of understand history. Um, you know, governments have been in the business of regulating businesses since essentially the beginning of time. Uh, now, if you look at, for example, you know, finance, right? That's another industry that is, uh, you know, quite widespread, uh, known for some pretty bad abuses, things like that. Um, you know, the first stock exchanges appeared maybe in the 17th century, but the first real, you know, legislation really only came after the Great Depression, right? It was the Securities Act, you know, of 1933, right? Yep. Uh, and then onwards, you know, even that wasn't enough. We had a financial crisis in 2008, and then more regulation came afterwards, right? So what that really shows is regulation and governments in particular, it takes time, right? And we cannot... Well, and re reactive as well. Yes, and also yeah. reactive as well. So you cannot say, let's rely on you know, government regulation to keep us from going off the edge of the cliff. Because historically, that has never been the case, right? They regulate after you go off the edge of the cliff. Uh, and if you want to take action you know, before then, I think it needs to come from the private sector, right? It cannot be government-driven. You know, government will not drive the change in this area um, because they've historically never have done that. And what about the consumer, right? Because you see a different kind of model in China, for example, right, where there's an expectation from the consumer that they do need to pay for a lot more services in China. You know? So some of the things that in you know, the UK, US, and so on are, are free, like, you know, like this podcast in China, you know, there's an yeah. expectation you pay for podcasts. So mm. do you think you can, all, do you think the role of the private sector working together with the consumer is to try to actually mm. create a price for mm. using the internet? Uh, well, I actually think China is not a very good example here. And it, it, <laughs> that's it, fine. It, <laughs> and I'll tell you why, right? Yes. Uh, well, I think it also has very strong trade-offs, right? Yeah, yeah. yeah. Yes. You know, in China, there's you know surveillance capitalism, and surveillance in general, you're not fooling or tricking anybody, right? Everybody in China knows they live in a surveillance state. They're aware the government is spying on everything that they do and has the ability to read all their personal information. This is kind of a known fact. Yeah. Um, they live with it. And in fact, I would say that they have a much higher awareness of the risk of surveillance than Western society. Um, because you know, in China, you write the wrong thing online, you end up in jail. Right. Uh, here, we don't have that sort of pressure and we don't have that. You know, that's not part of our everyday reality. Uh, so, in fact, uh, they're not being tricked because they know exactly what's going on. Yeah. Whereas in the Western world, in fact, most people have no clue. It's not part of their daily reality. Uh, so that's why it's not really, you know, you cannot compare with China because the level of awareness is completely, you know, on a different level. And so just to revisit that idea of, you know, 
it won't be the government that solves this, or at least, at least sort of proactively, right, or, or, or in advance of whatever the next scandal is, right? So, so you're saying it's it's more the role of private companies, and possibly I would argue private companies in alliance with the consumer, because you know. Uh -huh. So how will that? Do you think that will play out? Well, ultimately. When you look at any industry and how it evolves, it always comes down to consumer choice. Uh, consumers will make a decision, and their decision translates to how they pay for things, their wallet, right? You pay yeah. with your wallet, you vote with your wallet in many ways, and that decides the future of any industry. Uh, you know, If consumers decide that electric cars are the future, then that's the future. If consumers decide that they want to have more privacy in the future, uh, then that's where things are going to go. Uh, you know, my view and the reason that we're doing ProtonMail and working so hard in this space is we actually view privacy as an innate human need. Right? Yeah. It's something that everybody has a need for. Whether you realize it or not uh, is another question, um, but you do have that need. You have, you, know, you have passwords on your accounts, you have curtains on your windows, you have locks on your doors because we have an innate need for privacy. And that need for privacy so far hasn't translated to the internet yet, but it will. Uh, it's just a matter of time. And do you think it can happen without ed you know, education? Because w maybe we can go back and discuss customer behavior, right? But in order to change my behavior, I have to realize there's something yeah. wrong with that behavior, or at least there were risks associated with that behavior. Mm -hmm. So will this problem, so, you know, you can imagine a situation where suddenly the private sector allows us choice. It gives us, for everything, we have two versions, the free version and the and the paid version. Mm -hmm. And one gives us privacy, one, you know, sacrifices our privacy, and we make that choice. But how do we make the consumer aware and make that informed choice mm -hmm. because at the moment as you said yes. right they're not making a conscious choice because they're not aware of, of these inherent trade-offs well there's a couple of things that right first of all to make a choice there has to be a choice right yep. and until ProtonMail came along there really wasn't a choice you wanted email you got it from a service that was going to invade your privacy and mine your data that was it yeah right uh, so what industry and private sector can do is a we can provide that choice right um, that's the first step uh, once you have the ability to make a choice, uh, then it's just really, you know, um, kind of like a matter of time in some sense, right? Because Google's face, you know, business model, Facebook's business model, this is not something that can be hidden forever. People will eventually figure it out, right? And they, you know, the, re the reason awareness today is higher than it was, let's say, uh, you know, um, 10 years ago is because the, t because the technology is newer back then. People didn't really understand it. Now they do. Right? And in 20 years, of course, more people will understand. Now, certain things like you know, education, uh, certain things like data breaches and scandals, yeah. these, things, these things can accelerate that trend. Um, but you know, knowledge tends to spread, and the information will get out. And that's why it's really just a matter of time. Right? So what we are, are controlling on in the industry is providing the choice and then seeing what we can do to accelerate that shift. And then do you see in your own business, in adoption and so on, a positive correlation with the things that you were just saying, like scandals, you know, so after Cambridge Analytica, did you suddenly mm -hmm. see a spike in, in um, demand and interest for ProtonMail? Yes, so each time there's a scandal, uh, there are always spikes, right? But you know, you don't build a business or change an industry based off of spikes. Um, what you need is you need a strong underlying trend. And that trend is going to be, you know, based off of scandals, right? That trend will be based off of user awareness and, you know, user knowledge um, and user sophistication. And that really comes naturally, right? The first time you go on Facebook, your first thought is not, how do they make money, right? Um, no. yeah. But uh, 
after seeing some ads that are suspiciously like what you've searched for and hearing some stories from people who have used the service and know more and maybe friends who are more well-educated, you slowly begin to know. So that knowledge permeate, you know, permeates out into the society, um, but it takes time. Yep. Uh, it's not overnight. And you, you just yourself use this, the term change an industry, right? And the industry you're trying to change is a very big industry. And so, you know, implicit in what you're doing is that you've got just massive ambition, right? Mm. And and also you're really early with this. I mean, so, you know, in preparation for this, we watched your TED Talk. And, you, you know, you were saying things back in 2014 that people have only really started saying recently, right, about the sort of negative externalities of a free internet. And so, A, how did you get into this? And B, you know, how do you arrive at wanting to sort of take on Gmail and the biggest corporations in, in, or Google and the biggest corporations in the world. I suppose most most people would have thought, you know, this is a great business, but it's, you know, it's just so big and scary that I'm going to do something smaller. So, you know, how did you arrive at this and how do you manage with, you know, a business that has such ambitious mission? Mm-hmm. Well, I think uh, what you mentioned earlier, and this is also something that I said, I think, back in that TED Talk, uh, you know, we are trying to, in fact, change the business model of the internet, right? Because the only way that, you know, our mission succeeds is if we build a new business model, right? And the business model cannot be around advertising. Uh, so that's, of course, very ambitious because it's trying to disrupt an industry that yeah. today is maybe over to, you know, $200 billion uh, a year, right? Uh, so that, in fact, is the mission. And I don't think, you know, you go into this with that in mind, right? That's not, you don't go into a job and say, okay, you know, I want to um, disrupt a two hundred, you know, um, billion dollar industry. I, some people maybe go in that way, but the way that you know uh, I went into it, and the way that our team went into it was, you know, we saw a need. It was a need that we think is important, uh, not just kind of you know because there's a business here, but really because of the so- social impacts, right? You know, democracy relies on freedom of speech. Freedom of speech uh, relies on having privacy. It's all connected. Yeah. Uh, so we sort of saw the you know social angle that was very very important, and that's what made us decide that we needed to pursue this. And I think a lot of that comes from the history of the company, right? It was uh, founded at CERN. It's um, Created by scientists, in fact, uh, you know the World Wide Web was also created at CERN, so we had a kind of connection. Yeah, to there's that. a nice symmetry there. Yeah. Yeah, and you know, we saw how the web had you know transformed. It was invented to foster the you know communication, right? It was invented also to build a better world, and we think the web today is not really reaching the full potential of what it was you know created to do, right? It's become in many places actually a tool of oppression. Yeah. Uh, and for us, the key thing is we need to try to reverse that trend uh, somehow, right, by providing choices and options and tools for people. And that is really what drove us into the business. You know, after coming in, I guess we're not stupid. We realize that it's quite challenging, of course, as you say. And But uh, we think there's, you know, this is something that's very important to do, success or fail, right? Someone needs to do it. And I think that's the reason why most people, you know, to, you know, go into science is because you do it because somebody needs to do it. And we felt that calling to go out there and do it. So I'm guessing you're a physicist, right? Yes, that's correct. Yeah, so so, so you're, you're a physicist, um, and that's how you ended up at CERN. And how do you go from CERN to creating software to, to, to change the business model of the internet? Well, I think the uh, joke is that it's all math at the end of the day, right? (laughs) Correct. So, um, in fact, it is all math. It is all, you know, logical reasoning. So, the great thing about physics is physics, you can kind of go into essentially any field out there. What physics does, it doesn't teach you any specific skills, so to speak, but it teaches you how to think. So, in fact, going from physics to, you know, technology was not a huge jump. And... 
tell us how it works and by extension the business model for it, how you you know how you make this pay the business model is a uh, freemium uh, so that means you can use it for free but if you want more advanced features and services then you have to pay for it so in that sense it's quite similar to dropbox and you know it's either you pay for the service or the service is going to sell you to pay for itself right and that's the model that we picked uh, you pay for the service it works by using something known as end to end encryption and what end-to-end encryption does is it encrypts data on your device before it reaches our server. And the beauty of that means that all the data that we store on you is encrypted in a way that we actually can't access. Uh, so this guarantees you two things, right? One is um, privacy, because if we can't read your data, we can't sell it to third parties. Yep. It's as simple as that. But it also gives you security kind of for free. And that's because because the data that we store is encrypted. If we were to get hacked or breached, um, you know, a hacker cannot steal from us something that we don't have. So really, security and privacy go hand in hand. They're actually two sides of the same coin. And that's why I think it's really important, because you know, it's not just for privacy, it's also for uh, security. And cybercrime today is one of the biggest challenges that we're going to face in the 21st century. So it's sort of solves both of those problems at the same time. Yeah, and what I like about it, you know, to revisit that point from earlier, is it doesn't really require any behavioral change, right? Instead, we carry on doing what we always do, which is, you know, emailing, you know, um, I've, you know, many people at once, big attachments, well, you know, all the things that are um, a little bit risky, but, it, but we, so, but this time they're encrypted. So if you like, you're not asking people to change the like behaviors that have grown up with the internet. Yeah. You're just protecting that individual from, you know, from exposing themselves or uh, to you know risk of hacking and. Yeah. Yes. Yes. Exactly. Uh, and I think that's really, really important uh, because if I go out in the street and ask anybody, "Would you like more privacy and security?" You know, no one's ever told me no to that question. Yep. Right. It's always, "Who do I give up? Who do I sacrifice? What's the trade-off?" Uh, and our mission, and you know, if you want to sum it up in the sentence, is to make that trade-off zero. Uh, so you know, we want to reduce all the technical hurdles, reduce all the you know user interface hurdles, and make it as simple and as easy as, as the services you already use that don't have encryption. So the encryption needs to be fully automatic, fully transparent, invisible to the user. And that is really you know our goal. And that's actually, in many ways, actually our main innovation. And so if you send me an email, which you have from ProtonMail, it comes into my email server displayed in a way that's like every other email, right? Uh, yes, yes, that's correct. Now, in that situation, you know, Obviously, my inbox is encrypted. Everything on my side is secured. But if you're not using ProtonMail, if you're using Gmail, then of course, you know, Google will get a copy of your email, right? Yeah. And that's why in Proton, there's kind of a strong network effect. Because if you want to protect the entire network, uh, you know, you want to get your friends and family on to use the service. And that's something that has really been driving the growth because, you know, there's obviously still value in protecting your own data, your own inbox, right? But if you want to protect your whole community of, you know, people and contacts, then you also get them on the same system. And we see more and more of that, you know, as we continue to grow and scale. So really pleased that you raised that because I was because I was going to ask you about customer acquisition costs and the speed of adoption and so on. So there's two things based on what you said that really would suggest to me that this would have very low customer acquisition costs, right? One is the freemium model. And so mm -hmm. the first question is what percentage of users eventually become paying users? And then the second model is to what extent the network effects are really driving user, user um, adoption. 
Well, uh, we know that the you know largest segment of growth, so the you know single biggest reason that uh, people use ProtonMail today, is actually word of mouth referrals. So the network effect is in fact the biggest driver of growth. Yeah. Um, so you know that's that's that. Then I think freemium is also important, but for us, freemium is really going back to the mission of the company, right? Uh, you know, our mission is to make privacy accessible to anybody in the world that wants and needs it. And you can only do that by offering the service for free. Yeah. I'll give you an example. You know, we have a VPN service as well, uh, and the country that has the most users of Proton VPN is actually Iran, right? Okay. They're under sanctions, so in fact, they don't have credit cards. They're not tied into the banking system. They have no way to pay us. And if the service wasn't free, then those hundreds of thousands of users in Iran um, would get cut off. Right, so that's why for our mission to succeed, in fact, we must make it free to make it accessible, and we subsidize that by people who do pay us. Yeah, so there's actually so there's if you are familiar with this term shared value transactions, right? But it's this this idea that you know the hev- the heaviest users or the or in this case you know the you know the most demanding users maybe pay for all the features that then are offered to everybody, um, and and you only need a small number of those people to to become paying users for the whole model to, to work and how many you know like so what's the conversion rate on freemium into premium in, mm. in your case well in most it depends a lot on country right yeah and the way a service like proton works because we're so global is in fact you essentially have the first world subsidizing the third world so it's like um, probably what the model for climate change it, it, yeah, it, yeah. It, exactly i think that's actually a good thing right yeah. um because in fact uh, you know there's sort of like a hidden transfer of wealth there yeah. but that is in fact needed to create a more equitable and just world right so you know i think that's actually a good feature and conversion rates of course are much higher in western europe and the us they're much lower in places where people cannot afford to pay but we're okay with that because overall you know, we have a model where it's sustainable it's um profitable so that means they can continue to grow and it's you know it's a cycle that fuels itself and that's what we need to have a business that you know can survive and be uh, you know stable what is the trigger point to go from freemium to premium you know it's a uh, very hard to say it depends on the person there's quite a few people who so they, it's, but it's sorry to be to ask in a different way yeah. it's it's a set of features that that i sign up to that then makes yes. it premium right yes exactly yeah, okay. so uh you know paid accounts have certain features that are not available such um, as well you can have additional storage Right. Okay, yeah. There's additional features like you know autoresponder on emails. So yeah. so it's 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 a it's a subset of features and storage uh, that you know you don't get on the free account, and that's what is driving conversion. But I think a lot of people pay for the service really to, I think, support the ideals of the company and what it stands for. And you know they pay because they know that privacy matters. They care about it, and if they don't pay, they simply won't have the privacy anymore. Right, uh, someone needs to pay something if you want to have this option. Uh, so it's really about keeping a private option available to the world, and I think that's very important. And then, do you have many businesses that adopt ProtonMail for all of their employees? Uh, yes. So today, there's probably between twenty and thirty thousand businesses um, who are using the service. Okay. Um, they obviously all pay. And for a business, the value proposition is very clear. Right. A, you can go to a cloud but still keep control of your data. Uh, that's important to a lot of banks and financial industry yep. uh, customers. But then secondly is you know, your communications within the company are secure and private um, by default because every employee will be automatically you know, secured and encrypted. Because when you laid out the binary choice earlier, right, between either having privacy in your email communications or not having privacy in your email communications, and you said the, you, know, you had the sort of free options like, you know, like Gmail, or the paid options like yours. There's a third actual 
um, option, right? Which is you use your corporate email account, but in which case your, you know, the corporation you work for can see everything that you're seeing and doing, right? So, so I'd argue that, that there are actually three choices for individuals. Would you, would you, would you agree with that? And, and it, but in this case, I guess the, the, the corporation allows you free access to email that's secure and where they can't spy on you. So actually, I would argue against that um, because what is email fundamentally? Email, I would argue, is actually the most meaningful uh, passport of the 21st century, right? In the 20th century, your identity was tied with your passport. That was who you were. So that was how you verified to the world who you were. That was how you accessed all the services that the world could offer you, right? Today, everything's moving online. And every online service uh, that you sign up for is actually linked to your email. It's your online entity. It's your, it's your online passport. True, um, yeah. And the idea of using a corporate you know, email account doesn't actually work because that would be like, say, you know, your employer is your is your identity. It's not true, right? Uh, so that's why, for that reason, you know, um, that's not really an option for most people. It's so true because that's happened sort of, you know, insidiously, which is so many services just say, you know, sign up using Gmail, sign up using Facebook. And again, you, you know, talking, you know, once again, like sort of unconsciously, you don't think about the, the sort of, the ramifications of that. But you're right, it's become like way more, in, you know, linked to our identity than, 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 I mean, you saying that's made me realize, wow, that's true. And I hadn't even thought about that myself, right? Mm -hmm. Yes. So, uh, you know, Gmail isn't just, let's say, controlling uh, your, um, you know, uh, data. Uh, they're also controlling your identity in some ways. And you don't realize that when you sign up for it, but that's what is happening. And that's why you know, we feel it's very important to have an independent identity, uh, you know, which is built on the idea of privacy and security at its core and respecting your rights online. Some people make an argument. I just, I mean, I'm, I'm, you know, I'm obviously know where you stand on this, but some people sort of say, you know, the, the genie's out of the bottle, right? The, we can't go back and you know, reclaim our privacy. So almost more logical would be to make everything transparent. And if everybody could see everything, then there would be less abuses of, of, of our rights. Where do you stand on that? How do you challenge the logic of, and the soundness of that argument? Well, I would ask that person that tells you that for their email password and see they give it to you. <laughs> yeah, good point. And so I can imagine that many people, for many reasons, sport you know, because they want to challenge what you're trying to achieve in your mission. I imagine you're the subject of, of attempted hacks a lot, right? How do you counter that? Well, the best way to protect data is to not have it in the first place. So the way that we counter that is simply by encrypting as much as we can so that we don't have anything that can be stolen from us, right? Um, but, if, but if they solve, you know, if they can, I don't know how, exactly how it works, but if they can... They can figure out the encryption keys, then they can get access well, to the encrypted data. To this day, uh, not possible to break the encryption that you know we use, right? This, of course, maybe won't be the case two decades from now. Um, but we encrypt data in a way that even you know the strongest supercomputers in the world uh, theoretically should not be able to crack the data. So it is, for all intents and purposes, you know, inaccessible um, to a to a hacker. And. So that's one risk, right? I think so. So you've convincingly sort of argued that you're ahead of that risk. And I suppose in the same way that, you know, the sophistication of hackers will grow, the sophistication of the technology you use will also improve, right? So it's a race, but for now you're ahead, right? The other big risk, I guess, is coming under pressure from governments to just hand you the data, right? 
sorry, hand them the data. Because a bit like, you know, Apple sort of says, you know, our, our devices are encrypted and safe and so on. And then, you know, the US government says, yeah, we want access to it. I mean, what, have you come under that kind of pressure? How do you deal with that? Uh, well, the answer, of course, is yes. Like, you know, any major tech company, we do come under that type of pressure. Uh, you know, we're based in Switzerland. Switzerland has very strong privacy laws and a strong history of protecting privacy. So that is obviously a very strong you know, advantage. But the technology also works, right? Um, if you do the technology properly, in fact, there's no way for us to decrypt the data. Uh, so it's mathematically not a possibility. So you don't, you couldn't even if you wanted to, to, uh, to decrypt your, the data you have on your servers? Uh, yes, that's, that, that's the point of end-to-end -end encryption is that you know, it's encrypted before it comes to us and we don't have the way to decrypt it. So that's the. Oh, know. so your argument is simply, even if you know, it, no matter how much pressure you apply, we simply can't yes. respond to your desire. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. But there's also a third aspect to this, which is that the opinion on governments uh, has shifted quite a bit from 2014. Right? Yeah. In 2014, it was okay. Encryption is a major threat to national security. Right. Um, now the conversation is. We need more cybersecurity because they've seen the hacks and the scandals and the issues of the past, you know, five years. So, in fact, governments that were, you know, maybe pushing and, uh, you know, trying to uh, pressure us in 2014, uh, some of them are now our customers. Right? Really? I was, so, so I was going to ask about users. So we'll come back to yeah, maybe that. Yeah. Yeah. So, so, so this kind of shows a shift in how the attitude has changed because people realize that, in fact, you know, we're not just providing privacy but also security, and security is the key to securing the 21st century, you know, digital economy. Yeah. Yeah, because I, th and, and again, coming back to this point, I just think it's Canute-like to sort of say, okay, let's roll back, you know, what we've, what we've put in place. And instead, it's much better to say what we've got in place, let's secure it. And, I'd and that's what I really like about everything that you're saying. Because, you know, the mission, obviously everybody buys into the mission, but also it's a mission that's, and a, and a business that's, that doesn't require, it doesn't introduce loads of friction into our lives, basically. Um, because we've got used to, to a frictionless experience using the internet. And the other way to look at this is, you know, um, does encryption come with certain risk? Um, of course it does, right? It's not black and white. Yeah. Is it possible that, you know, terrorists could use something like ProtonMail? Of course. But we also know they also use Facebook, they also use Twitter, they also use buses and planes, right? You cannot possibly ban everything a terrorist could possibly use. Yeah. The way you address this question, the way you look at it is you have to say, you know, what is the overall social benefit, right? And when it comes to trains and cars and planes, of course they can be abused, but there's a very strong social benefit there as well. And it's the same for encryption and security technology, right? Uh, we need it to secure our data and secure our future because the future is data and the future is online. And the social benefit from that, you know, outweighs the risk that may come as a result of this technology. So we've started to touch on it a couple of times but let's let's now if you don't mind delve into a bit like who uses it so i imagine you know millions of you know of individuals like me use proton mail but you know i read on on your website you were talking about the activists that use it you've said governments sometimes use it i guess terrorists could could use it as you said right so who uses it and what do they use it for? Is there anything that, so first of all, give us a sort of, you know, breakdown of the demographics of the kind of people that use it. And then is there anything about their usage that makes you uncomfortable as CEO? Well, you know, as a web service and as an email writer, uh, the users are basically anybody that would use Yahoo, Gmail, or Microsoft, yeah. right? Um, it's the same, you know, spectrum of people is it though because because it's i guess particularly i don't know i mean we'll come back to numbers of users if you could you know if you could share that with us but yeah. 
I would imagine, particularly in the beginning, the early adopters were people who mm. were hot on this idea of yes. privacy in a way that others weren't. Yes, I think yeah. in 2014 that was true. Yeah. But today, with you know more than 20 million users, it's really kind of come into the mainstream. And it's really, you know, everybody will have a reason to use a service like this, right? You know, people that want privacy and security, it isn't just the you know, paranoid guys or the government yeah. people or the journalists or the you know, activists, right? Uh, that's a need that actually you know, even your mother might have, right? Uh, so in fact, I would say, of course, we may not have as many mothers using ProtonMail uh, compared to, let's say, uh, you know, Gmail, but that demographic is represented, right? So we capture actually the full spectrum you know, globally, um, but it's really people that have a higher awareness, right? What links them together is not what the field they work in, their backgrounds or where they live, but really their level of awareness of how the internet works and their level of concern for privacy and security. And that 20 million number, I mean, that's staggering, right? And even, like the first time I ever heard you speak was at an event here in Fongy. And you know, I was blown away by what you're saying, the ambition of what you're doing. But even then, you know, which, which was I think just a few months ago, the, the number wasn't anywhere near 20 million. So that would suggest to me that you really are seeing these network effects kick in. It's like exponential type growth, right? Uh, yes, the growth is pretty rapid right now. You know, it's really because of awareness, right? People are just more and more aware today than they were in the past. Uh, if you go in 2014, well, okay, in 2010, uh, you know, Mark Zuckerberg basically said that privacy is no longer a social norm, right? He comes out this year and he says privacy is Facebook's, you know, main focus now, right? Yeah. Uh, so. Do you and do you believe in? Uh, well, of course not, right? <laughs> but, 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 but but the fact that guys like him yeah. have shifted tone so dramatically in the past, you know, decade really shows where things are going, uh, and that's that's why I think you know the awareness is up, and uh, we want to be ready. We want to have the service that people can rely on, and you know, we want to really be part of the change that we want to see in the world. And do you see more users or greater adoption in, in countries where their privacy is, you know, potentially at greater risk? And do you see, and I suppose you don't even know that much about the demographics, but do you see, I mean, just to go back to this, this topic of activists, because I mean, you yourself were talking about this in one of your blogs, is it people and places where their privacy is more at risk? I think adoption is certainly higher in those communities, right? You know, among journalists and activists, it's very, very popular. A lot of people are using it. Uh, if you look at our VPN service in Iran, yep. you know, that's a huge user base there as well. So of course, uh, you know, if you have a need and if it's something that your life depends on, you're going to use it, right? And you will use it maybe potentially, you know, more and preferentially more compared to somebody else who, you know, isn't at risk. So there is, of course, a correlation. And where, and where do you stand on freedom of speech, right? Because, you know, activists are using your platform to defend their freedom of speech and to defend their freedom of protest. And somebody like Mark Zuckerberg, that's, you know, let's, let's bring him up again. He would argue that, I, I suppose he would make any argument that would absolve him from taking any responsibility for, for protecting freedom of speech. Where do you stand? I mean, what are the limits of freedom of speech if, nobody, you know, if, if we can't see what people are saying? I think you know, freedom of speech is obviously something that's very important. It's the cornerstone of modern Western democracy, right? Now, can freedom of speech uh, you know, be abused? Sometimes there's hate speech, there's hate crimes, there's, you know, um, far right and also far left people who can abuse services like this, right? Email, though, which we, you know, do is inherently private, right? It's private conversation. And what you say in private, uh, in fact, is protected, right? Now, if you use technology like uh, Twitter, Facebook, or even, you know, ProtonMail to, let's say, you know, espouse far right, uh, you know, hate speech, then that is actually against the law. 
right? That's against the law in Switzerland. And we as a company would adhere by Swiss law. And I think on topics like this, it's important for tech companies to really follow the law, right? You know, we cannot take on the role of judge, jury, executioner in, yeah. uh, you know, educating and, you know, passing judgment on these type of issues. Uh, we, you know, must adhere and respect the legal framework. And so just, again, to get back to the idea of, you know, the legality of some of these things and, the, and therefore government's role in regulating the internet. Do you remember the law that I think was passed in the Clinton era that essentially you know, absolved lots of these internet companies from taking responsibility for any of this stuff, from having any responsibility for safeguarding the truth on the platforms. And mm-hmm. do you think it's time to change that law then? Because if, if, if you're saying that ultimately, you know, your responsibility is to, to adhere to legal frameworks, do those legal frameworks therefore need to be mm-hmm. upgraded for the internet age? Well, ProtonMail, for example, as a mail service, because mail is private communications, uh, you know, is a completely separate uh, category compared to social media where it's publicly viewable, right? So, you know, um, this discussion, uh, for example, you know, wouldn't really apply to service like ProtoMail, which is private communications. Yeah. Now, the law, I, I do know the law I'm talking about, right? What, this, what it basically says is, you know, provide, uh, platform providers like Facebook and Twitter cannot be held liable for the content that is posted by their users because the user is actually the author of that, right? Yeah. And my personal view is, uh, in fact, I think, you know, that law is, in fact, correct. Um, because, you know, you cannot, it's probably in many ways almost impossible, right, um, to force platform providers to really police everything that is said and posted on their platforms. It's, it's uh, you know, I think it's uh, actually impossible. Where I think there does need to be some more strengthening is that if something posted is, you know, false, defamatory, um, or, you know, malicious, you know, there needs to be ways uh, to, you know, probably legally compel the takedown of such information after it's proven to be false, defamatory, uh, or, or, you know, uh, malicious, right? Do you think they have a responsibility themselves for that kind of fact checking? Well, I would say there's a moral responsibility to do that, right? If not a legal Yeah, but I'm not sure morality and ethics is high on the list of some of the uh, people that run these platforms, right? Yes. So I would say they're more concerned about their profit margins and their bottom and top lines, right? And spending time, you know, checking content and responding to legal requests uh, is probably not very cost efficient. So yes, the, most of the platform providers probably hide behind this law and say it's not our obligation. Uh, but I do think there does need to be an obligation to, you know, uh, remove data that is just false and you know, wrong. Do you think it was a sort of necessary step that there was, you know, we needed some sacrifice of our own privacy in the beginning to get this thing moving? And, you know, mm-hmm. so would you argue it was like it, it was a necessary precondition to widespread adoption for us to, to be giving up some of our privacy? And now has come the time to sort of now, now it's adopted and in our, in our lives to then just tighten up. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, the internet was never really free to begin with, right? You know, you pay for your internet service, you pay for your internet connection. Uh, in fact, from the beginning of time, the internet was actually not free. If you look at things like Hotmail and Yahoo in the early days, those services were not fully free, right? The free internet uh, and free internet services is a relatively modern invention in the history of the internet, right? It really came in the mid-2000s. Uh, so it, it, was, it was paid first. It became free, and now it's shifting back towards being paid so, again. So, so you argue it needs to just go full circle? Yeah. 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 Where do you stand on net neutrality? Uh, well, I think it's important to protect. I think, I think, I think we need it, right? Because without net neutrality, uh, you essentially give you know, big companies certain advantages that smaller people cannot uh, compete with. Yeah. 
So you would argue it was a mistake to, to make that change? Yes, I, I think net neutrality is important for the future of the internet. So you know, that's, that's my personal view. So are you campaigning for it to be reintroduced? Well, I'll give you kind of an example, right? Uh, you know, in the UK, there's a new law that allows ISPs to censor you know, various websites if they believe it's you know, um, adult material, right? And our VPN service, Proton VPN, was you know mistakenly you know categorized as adult by some ISPs, and you know the ISPs are very hard to get in touch with; they're not very responsive. And in fact, the only way to solve this issue is to make an official complaint under EU net neutrality rules, right? So that's an example of a small company being able to compete in a market because of net neutrality. Uh, so in fact, I think it's very very important. And uh, without that, you don't have innovation, right? If we didn't have this legal recourse to you know, do this, then we're at a disadvantage because a big company like Google would never get blocked because they're too big. I want to talk a bit about the scaling journey you've been on, right? So you've got 20 million customers, which is, again, I'm staggered by that number, right? And, you know, you're, I guess you're adding tens of thousands a week or whatever the number is. What have been the challenges along the road to scaling this business to that extent and you know what trade-offs have you had to make because clearly you want this to be the most secure but that costs lots of money right clearly you want this to be you know as economical as possible for the users so but that's a difficult thing to achieve and make the uh, to produce a really high quality service so what trade-offs have you made and what have you learned in scaling a business to this level it's no different than any other business, actually. There's sort of three levers you can control, right? Uh, there's cost, uh, there's time, which is related to cost to some extent, and there's quality. Right? Yeah. If you want high quality and high security, you need to invest more time. And as a consequence of investing more time, you're, you're investing more money. And all businesses, to some extent, are optimizing these three levers. And depending on the company you go to, they are on, could be on very, very different sides of the spectrum, right? For us, security and privacy is our core business. Quality is very important. So we've optimized the business in such a way that we care about quality first, and you know, costs and time are sort of secondary. So you know, we have a don't cut any corners type of philosophy. And the you know, trade-off of this is we are probably higher cost than our competitors. We probably develop products more slowly than our competitors. But I would argue that we also provide a a product that is in the end higher quality, more secure, and more private than our competitors. Uh, and you know, you must make trade-offs all the time, right? And in any sort of project, any sort of business, uh, you need you need to decide where in that uh, you know in, in the space space you want to position yourself. And who do you see as the competitors? Because presumably you would put people like Gmail in a completely different category, not direct competitors. I think today, in fact, the competitor is Gmail. Because if you look at where most of our new users are coming from, they're coming from legacy email services, right? They're coming from Google, Microsoft, Yahoo, you know, even AOL sometimes, right? So they are, in fact, our biggest competitor. And I think, you know, if you want to think about the future, that's the target that we need to, um, you know, aspire to go after. But is there another secure email service offered on a freemium basis? Um, is there anybody else who has exactly the same business model as you out there? Oh, yeah, of course. Uh, you know, after we entered the space and kind of, you know, opened up the space, a lot of people, you know, came in as well. Uh, this is sort of normal for any other yeah. space, right? And uh, I think that's actually a positive thing, right? It's, it's good to have more competition, more activity, and more attention on your space because that drives innovation, that drives growth, and competition is always good in my mind. Uh, 
us being sort of the first movers into the space and you know being by large you know but by a significant margin the biggest player you know that's something that is quite durable because there is a network effect here yeah right? yeah yeah no um, i mean yeah any any business with our network effects tend to be winner takes most markets, uh, right? Yeah, and I would say communication apps in general also follow that sort of trend. Uh, so that is an inherent advantage, you know, for us being in this space. But at the same time, we're also not the ones who just kind of sit on our hands and say, you know, we're happy, right? You know, we want to push innovation in the space. You know, we want to continue maintaining our level of quality, and we want to keep doing new things and doing things, you know, better and better. So that remains kind of our key focus because we must do that if we want to take down the real competition, which is Google. Yeah. No, so I mean, I think what you're saying is interesting because when you've got a business that's that's underpinned by network effects, the temptation is just to sit back and let them kick in. And so because it becomes such a strong moat, right? But what you're saying is you're not resting on the network effects moat. You're also pushing the mm-hmm. innovation moat as well, right? Yes, because network effect moat uh, protects us in the encrypted space, right? But that's maybe the 2% of the market that we've captured so far overall, right? The, the, other, the opportunity is the other 98% of Google users who are not on the system yet and to go after them you must innovate you must be better right you know you can't just be more secure and more private you also need to be maybe easier to use faster you have to look nicer it needs to be more stable right you have to compete on all these other things that people yeah. care about as well yeah yeah they do and would you argue today that your service is so it's it's, it's the most widely used would you also argue this the most secure i would say so yes yeah. um now you know uh what I also want to say is there's no such thing as 100% security, right? Yep. By definition, it doesn't exist. You know, any system can be compromised and can be hacked. All we can do on our side is you know, adhere to best practices, uh, don't cut any corners, uh, do things as carefully as we can, and you know, engineer the cryptography in as strong of a way as we can. Right. So, you know, um, these are things that we try to do. It's a reason that we use cryptography that's open source and open standards, which have been vetted by the community. Right. Uh, so we do our best to check every single box. But it's, I think, irresponsible and, you know, uh, not honest to claim that, you know, things are 100 percent secure because they, by definition, cannot be 100 percent secure. So I would imagine that everybody that's listening to this now wants a Proton mail account. I want one. How do we get one? And, and if we're a business, how do we port all of our existing email addresses onto ProtonMail. Yes. Well, if you're a consumer, you just go on the website, get an account, that's it, right? Um, If you're a business, we have an importing tool and we also have a customer support team who is there to help you with the migration. And we've migrated probably hundreds of companies uh, just in the past uh, month. It's something we do all the time. Uh, And, uh, you know, we're also improving these tools. So they're getting better and better, you know, every single month. And that's really, uh, you know, our goal, right, is to make it easy. And just to go back again, because um, I think we talked about the scale of the ambition for the company, which is great. And but how did what was the sort of eureka moment where you were like, okay, that I'm going to stop, you know, trying to discover whatever you guys are doing at CERN, you know, um, uh, you know, the minutest particles of, mm-hmm. or, I mean, if you want to tell us what people do at CERN, that might be also interesting. But yeah. like, how do you go from that to suddenly, okay, I'm going to launch a secure email system service? Mm-hmm. Well, I think uh, as scientists, we have natural curiosity, right? Yeah. Um, so there really wasn't a, an eureka moment in that, in, in the sense that, you know, you thought about the problem and said, okay, you know, let's do that. It was more like, this is something that I myself would like to have. You know, I like to have email that is secure and private. And if you're a scientist, I, I guess the benefit of that is you can, you know, you can actually build your dreams, right? So we just actually went out and built it ourselves because we had the know-how to do it. And... After we did that, uh, we simply released it to the public. We said, okay, we built this, now you can come and use it. And when we you know, released it, we discovered that a lot of people 
uh, had the same desires and same wishes as us when it came to security and privacy. And this was something that we didn't expect, we didn't anticipate, we didn't uh, project or foresee. It was just, you know, let's do it for the sake of the science, let's do it for the sake of having technology. And then, you know, as they say, the rest is history, right? The last thing I want to talk about, so when I saw you speaking at the Investor Day here at Fongite, I mean, I was struck by the ambition, you know, I keep talking about this, but the other thing that I found really sort of heartening was that a business with this potential scale is A, in Europe, because we don't have many platform type companies in Europe, and B, in Switzerland. And so I think you've talked a bit about why you're in Switzerland, because, I mean, you know, you, you, you were working at CERN, CERN is in Switzerland. There's an inherent advantage because Swiss privacy laws are very robust. But, you know, are there other advantages to being in Switzerland? And have you at any point mm-hmm. thought, okay, this is such a big business now, I think we need to take this to, to California? Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, so, uh, you know, of course, we get asked this question quite a bit. You know, investors in particular, you know, ask this question. Uh, so, you know, why Switzerland and, you know, why Europe, right? Well, it's... Uh, <laughs> Well, I'm very <laughs> pleased that you, you've chosen Switzerland and Europe, by the way. Yeah, so yeah, I'm, not, yeah. I'm not challenging you and asking you to get to California. Yeah, just, yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, uh, of course. But, but I, 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 think, I think it's an important question. I can start from a couple of levels. What is the most important thing for a tech company uh, to survive and thrive? I would say the most important you know, raw material, if you will, of our industry is raw talent, right? And if you consider Europe, you know, not Switzerland, but Europe as a whole, there's a population here of around half a billion people. That's a bigger population uh, than the U.S. And it's a highly educated population. So if you can leverage the potential of all of Europe in one company, uh, then in fact, you have access to a bigger talent pool you know, at a lower cost. And, you know, you have more raw materials here, in fact, than in the U.S. So that is from a high level, you know, why it makes sense. And I think... The fact that, you know, we want to do it in Europe and leverage Europe's potential also explains Switzerland in some ways, because Switzerland is maybe the most cosmopolitan, you know, country uh, in continental Europe. It's the place where you can bring Germans, Poles, you know, Spanish and French and, you know, Romanians, Romanians, wherever, you know, into one place and they can all feel at home and feel welcome here, right? And it's only by leveraging all of Europe that we'll succeed. I think uh, Switzerland also has various, you know, in addition to strong laws, it also has a lot of, you know, support structures uh, for startups like us, right? You know, there is Fonjit that we're based, which is offering a lot of support in you know, office space, organization, management, you know, putting, helping us to operate the business. There's State of Geneva, which is, you know, very open to providing, you know, whether it's advice, funding, whether it's, you know, tax breaks um, or other sort of support. You know, these support structures uh, make it a lot easier to, to also run a business and focus on growth instead of worrying about other things. Uh, so I think it's this combination of factors that you know, made it so that we were able to succeed in Switzerland and continue to grow within Europe. I don't know if you were there, right? But so Neil Reamer um, from Index, he, yeah. he, he gave a presentation on where he thought Switzerland was at in terms of attracting and retaining great digital age businesses. And I don't, I don't know if you, if, even if you went there, the, si- the slide was circulated on, on social. Yeah. You may have seen it, right? But he basically had you know, pluses and minuses. And I think there were more minuses than pluses. And you've talked about many of the pluses that he talked about. But you haven't addressed the negatives. So he was talking mm-hmm. about you know, the high cost of living, the difficulty sometimes getting visas for people. Have you encountered those kinds of problems? Um, 
Well, well I guess the high cost of <laughs> for sure, right? Yeah, yes, of yeah. course. So actually on the visa and permit side, having a close relationship with the state of Geneva uh, has essentially solved that issue for us. So we've never had any issues there. I would say cost is in fact a problem. The cost of living is very high. Geneva is better than Zurich in the sense that you're close to the French border. Yeah. So you can sort of, you know, reduce the cost a bit that way. This is why I recommend actually Geneva over Zurich, which is you know, not a popular opinion in Switzerland, no, but uh, yeah. you know, that's my opinion. But I think, you know, you can't build a business like this just in Switzerland, right? You also need to leverage other offices, other locations in Europe. And that's what we've done. And we have other offices in other locations throughout Europe, which allow us to bring the overall cost bases down even further. And sort of where, the last- where are, where are your other offices? So we have offices in, you know, in Prague. We have offices yep. in uh, Vilnius in Lithuania and also in Macedonia. Uh, so, you know, these locations help to kind of lower the average costs in Europe. Then I think the other thing is when it comes to costs, uh, yes, Switzerland is expensive, but you have to look at the alternatives, right? If you're not building a tech company here, then the only logical place you would actually go is San Francisco. And if you compare Swiss costs with you know California costs, in fact, we're quite a bit cheaper here. Really? Yes. <laughs> so um, I'm, I'm, I'm slightly surprised because so even so, housing, wages, these things are now yes. more expensive in California. Yes. Okay. Yeah, so it's completely shifted in the, in the past of five years. I think in 2014, they were about the same. Uh, today, we're maybe around 30 or 40% lower uh, in, in Geneva compared to San Francisco. Wow. Yeah. And I also like the fact you're the challenging with the received wisdom of, of Geneva over, over Zurich. That's cool. Yeah. But like, so I've, earlier on today, I was, I sort of was introduced to some of the members of, of your team. And the first thing that you observe is it's very multicultural, right? The second thing you observe is, is these guys are very young. It's very smart and very young. The third thing you observe is there aren't actually that many of them. So would you also argue that to create a platform business today, you don't need hundreds of thousands of people that you might have needed in to create a you know, really large industrial age business? Yeah. And so that's also perhaps gives an advantage to places like Switzerland where you can get very high quality talent and you don't need mm -hmm. hundreds. I think to scale, you do need a lot of people. Right, there's no way to get around the need of, for people. But it is true that if you hire, you know, very smart people, very talented people, and if you leverage the newest technologies, it's possible to do a lot more uh, with the same amount of people than would have been possible, you know, even one or two years ago. So, uh, in fact, it's true, right? You don't need that many people to run kind of, you know, a pretty massive business, but you still need people. It's still, it's still your main raw material, and uh, that's the, the fight for talent is still going to be the main thing. And the other reason I, you know, uh, say Geneva instead of Zurich is also kind of mindset and competition, right? Uh, you know, the competition is over talent. And in Zurich, you're fighting against some very big established yeah. you know, players. And including you're also, your nemesis. Yeah including, yeah, including Google. But not only that, is uh, you're in a talent pool that is much more conservative, um, much more, I would say, risk averse, and you know, much more corporate in a certain sense. Uh, whereas Geneva, uh, I would say, people here are more willing to take risks. They're more, you know, of the startup mindset, and that's another reason why you know we build our base here. And I think uh, we would actually be maybe more successful than we would be if we had, you know, wanted a Zurich. Last question: We've talked about the company journey. What about your personal journey? So you've gone from scientists to you know, to see of what is now becoming a really big business. 
what has that transition been like for you? Um, well, I think uh, in terms of what I do on a day-to-day basis, obviously there's been a big transition because uh, you know um, I had to learn new things, uh, figure it out, you know, learn from mistakes, right? Obviously, and also do things that maybe I wasn't trained to do in my schooling. So that's obviously a transition. Uh, but I think what is also very important is yes, you need to change and evolve, but it's also important to stay the same in many ways, right? Uh, to hold on to your core ideals and remember and keep in mind what is important. And I think for our business to succeed, we must also you know, keep in mind always that you know, our main focus, you know, why are we here, right? Why do we get up in the morning? It's not to you know, create a huge fortune. It's not to you know, become the next Google, right? That's, we don't want to become what we're fighting, right? What we want to do is we want to stay true to our ideals of you know, freedom, uh, democracy, you know, privacy, security, serving the world, serving the community and serving the users first. And that's something that I think my role now in the company is to make sure that we retain that for as long as possible and to make sure that new people that come in you know, understand that that is what makes us different and that is what you know, makes us important and able to carry out uh, you know, the mission that we want to do. Wonderful. No better way to finish than that with your description of why this business is so important and why it's so different. And I, I think it's inspiring and I'm delighted that you're based here in Switzerland. Andy, I just wish you all the best with your mission and I hope the trajectory carries on being as exponential as it's been. And I thank you very much for coming to the podcast. Yes, thank you. 